there are so many sources of differentiation and it doesn't come down to like, I always wear aqua. I mean, that, that kind of differentiation just drives me nuts uh, because it's not, it's not right. sticky. It's not long-term. It's, it doesn't have you know, to use, I forget who's, is it Warren Buffett's for, uh, analogy? There's no moat around it, right? Like mm. there's no, like anybody else can also then start wearing aqua and right. then like you have no protection on that, but your your unique point of view on the world is inviolable. Like nobody else can have that. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world with the power of human connection. I'm your host, Brian Miller, and today's guest is Tamsin Webster, and she's just as cool as her name suggests. Tamsin is a message strategist. In a sentence, she helps experts make their ideas irresistible. Tamsin is the former executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, one of the legacy TEDx conferences. And before that, she spent 13 years as a Weight Watchers leader. But those of us in the industry know her as the idea whisperer. I'm a huge fan of Tamsin and her work, and last year she finally released a book detailing her proprietary method for crafting ideas into irresistible messages. The book is called Find Your Red Thread. I bought it, read it in one day, and immediately implemented it into my work as a speaker and in my own coaching practice working with TEDx speakers and leaders. The episode you're about to hear is less an interview and more a conversation between two geeks over ideas, storytelling, and messaging. Here are just some of the topics we covered. What is a red thread? Why are ideas so important? There's a long diversion where we did kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the TEDx process for those of you curious. We also talked about how to differentiate your idea from everyone else's in an age when it seems like there are no new ideas left in the universe. Plus, Tamsin explains something called the Persuader's Paradox, which, honestly, I thought would make a great name for an indie rock band, but that's neither here nor there. She also dives deep into why typical story structures, like the three-act structure, just don't work for normal, everyday situations and what we can do instead. And, of course, Tamsin shares her story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. This episode is dense. It's a riot, and it's absolutely jam-packed. So check the show notes for all the ways to connect with Tamsin and her amazing new book, Find Your Red Thread. And now, please enjoy this incredible conversation with the one and only Tamsin Webster. Okay, Tamsin, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so excited to speak with you. I'm excited to be here. So thanks so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am just, I'm I'm a huge fan of your work. And then you had a book come out recently and the book is exceptional. And I want to talk about all the things, but let's start with what's on your plate right now? What are you working on this week? Oh, what I'm working on this week, we're getting ready. I'm doing a, a kind of intensive version of my mastermind coming up in a couple of weeks. So getting all the things, materials ready for that. So it's a new new format that we're trying out. So that's that's probably the main thing. Um, and then I have a couple other things where it's kind of fun for me where uh, opportunity to submit some new ideas for talks where people have asked me to do something different than I normally do. So I've got some good brainstorming happening this week about new takes on 
how to approach all this, you know, the, the general topics that I talk about. So I love, love, love that. That's, that's kind of fun stuff for me. Yeah. You enjoy the process of, of doing like one-offs or, or new, new versions of presentations. Yeah, I'm, I am entirely too lazy to do one-offs. So they're one of the reasons why I like, I like this kind of work is that it gives me an opportunity to really think through, like, I won't, I, I won't do a one-off if I can help it. So it's really a way to, for me to think about uh, a new angle on something or a new direction or just a new, just a, a new way to think or talk about what I'm doing. Um, because it, it's just, yeah. I, and, and that's a working through that creative process of working through another, like a new talk or a new presentation for me is fun. And it's been a while since I've done that. Like I developed two new ones last year and the beginning of the pandemic and they've served me extraordinarily well this year um, as well. But it's, this is a really long time for me to go without coming up with like a from scratch new concept. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all roads lead to the red thread, but coming up with new <laughs> concepts are always fun. Right. So, so for those who are totally unfamiliar with your work and maybe only got my one or two sentence intro, you know, these masterminds, these workshops, these speeches, what you're working on, you just said the words, the red thread. So give us a little bit more about that. What, what is, what is the master? Like, let's start with the mastermind. Cause you seemed really excited about that. And that's very present. Yeah. What is so the mastermind? The, yeah. the, the mastermind is, uh, we call it Le Cordon Rouge, which is a, <laughs> a bastardization of the French for the red thread. It doesn't actually mean that, but you know, it's close. Um, and it was inspired by the cooking school, Le Cordon Bleu, uh, where it's really meant to teach you how to use this method for yourself that I've developed, uh, for other people. So, um, so the method I developed is something I call the red thread. It is inspired by the idiom and expression, the red thread that talks about the main idea of something. So that's, that's the promise of the mastermind is that we help you work on whatever your big idea is and a way to be able to express that idea so that other people can see the power in it and understand it. Uh, and second, we're following a process, you know, so the red thread is the outcome. It's also the process, uh, which is really recreating the story that you told yourself to come up with the idea in the first place so that you can use that as the basis of a, of the story that people will tell themselves about your idea. Mm -hmm. So the mastermind, uh, really we've been doing it. I have been doing it as a, as a 10 week process virtual. Uh, and we're trying this next time as it's still going to be about a month total, but the real intensive part of it is we're going to do three half days uh, to download all that information really quickly and then give people a month to really work with it and then, and then finish it up after that. So oh, wow. playing around with that, but that is the mastermind and the red yeah. thread all wrapped in one. Yeah. So, okay. A lot of my listeners are kind of in their early twenties to mid thirties. They're young professionals coming out of college, coming out of grad school, early stage of their career. Uh, so, so what? For, for them? Why why should they care about ideas or the big idea? They're just trying to get jobs, right? So like what what's the well, point? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this in a lot of ways, I think as with many ideas, you end up solving for the problems that you yourself experienced at one time in your life or may still. And that's certainly the case for me in the red thread. So for various reasons, which we don't need to go into, I, for many, many years, was always the youngest person in the room. I was always the youngest person in my class. I was always the youngest person in grad school. I was always the, you know, I was always the youngest person around the table in, in meetings, et cetera. And 
I thought I had great ideas and they just didn't always come across or I wasn't able to argue for them in a way that was powerful. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but that is a very, very frustrating situation where you're like, I know the right answer here. And everyone's like, well, whatever, you're a kid, you can't hear it. Um, and I was like, no, I want to be able to figure out a way to present what I'm thinking, you know, a, in a way that people can't unhear it and in a way that they're like, oh, well, that's a really good point. Um, so that was problem number one I wanted to solve with it, which I think is resonant, hopefully resonant for the for your listeners. But the second thing was I also, particularly in the early years, when I was asked a question kind of out of the blue, I always I always felt as if I were blanking in that moment. And I didn't have a good go-to way to really think through how to how to answer a question in a way that made me come across the way that I wanted to be come across. Um, and so I found that the that this approach, this kind of structure of not only articulating an idea that already exists, but having to frame out the answer to a question um, solved for that problem too. That really strikes me because, of course, I'm doing some similar work these days outside of my speaking career. I work with speakers and entrepreneurs and business owners who are trying to clarify. And of course, I work with TEDx speakers in particular, and you do that at a much higher level. But uh, but what's interesting is when people ask me, wow, like you have a really high close rate on like these private clients. How are you closing so well in these conversations? And it's what you just said. All I have to do is ask them to explain their big idea. And they talk for 20 minutes and they just go on and on and on and on. And at some point they go, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. What did you ask me again? And I'm like, that's it. You're sold, right? Right. You understand what we need to do here now. That's the job. That's the job is take the 20 minute explanation and take it down to 20 seconds. You got it. Yeah, exactly. So what's, what's really fun is that you have this, I don't know, moniker out there. You're known as the idea whisperer, which by the way is perfect. I love it. It's so good. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm very grateful for the client who originally called me that. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, I wouldn't, I don't, I'm not the kind of person who's like, huh, let me call myself the idea whisperer. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm very grateful to the client that originally gave me that. I'm like, oh, well that, yeah, because it immediately resonated with other people. So I was like, well, yeah. let's just keep going with that. that yeah, that so so, so why why did that resonate with you and others? What, what does that mean to you to be the idea whisperer? Well, it, to me, it's it's apocryphal or not that it said that Michelangelo would look at a piece of marble and would see the figure within it. And really, his job was just to chip away until the figure that was already sitting in the middle of the marble came out. And that's how I look at people's ideas. I, I approach every engagement every with whether that's a company or, uh, or an individual with a perspective that there is a big idea in there. And it really sometimes just needs help getting out of the prison sometimes that it's in in people's minds um, or out of that trap of words that people get all you know, knee deep and mired in. Mm. Uh, and so that this idea of, of helping to call forth an idea from, from someone um, is just something that really spoke to me about about what I do, mm. because it's it is about kind of making the idea behave right? the way that you want yeah. to, much like you know the the original horse whisperer kind of thing did. Yeah. So let's actually take that then and go back to what you were talking about, kind of your own origin story, which is you were you were struggling when you were younger to actually get your ideas across in a powerful way, a compelling way that people would remember and talk about and stick. Uh, do you remember the 
first time or one of the first times you kind of you cracked it and you, you figured out how to tell your idea? Do you remember like what it was or, or what happened? Huh. It wasn't even really for, for me. I mean, I think that it was something I really s- continued to struggle with. I mean, I kind of hit on it every now and then. I mean, I would hit on it. I was pretty effective at it in pres- in presentation length format, right? So if I was asked to speak someplace, because I've been speaking professionally alongside of my job now for 17, 18 years. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and so some of that I think was, was just marketing training. Some of that was having had a background in the arts. And so I was really good, really. I mean, I, it, from the get go, and I'm not just saying that cause like I was great, but it's like <laughs> the feedback from the very beginning was very strong about my ability to present information, particularly in that like 45 minute piece that, that I could do, um, but I don't think I really solved the quick answer summation piece until I came up with this <laughs> approach, uh, and I came up with it for other people, and then I was like, oh, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> this guy this works for my own stuff, too. I mean, yeah. it, I, I did develop originally because I was doing, at the time that I came up with it, I was I was working, I was the executive producer for TEDx Cambridge, which is one Ooh. of only nine legacy levels. TEDx events in the world. Thanks very much. Yeah. And I still work with them. I just, I, I, I retired briefly and then they were like, please come back. Uh, <laughs> and so now I'm the idea strategist. And I like that because I now only do that part. I, I basically, I work with the speakers that the director chooses. So we do everything by invitation and then I work with them. Wait, let me from, pause for, for people who don't yeah. know about TEDx and we should talk more later uh, about the general TEDx, totally. but you said that at TEDx Cambridge, they only do invitation. In other words, many TEDx conferences, in fact, I would argue most these days have an open application Correct. process, but you do not. Yep. No, we used to. And then we realized that we didn't really ever follow it. So it's a it's a stat that I mentioned in the book. But after, you know, over the seven, six, seven years that we were actively doing an open application, we only ever took one person from the open application. Uh, and so we just didn't, we just stopped doing it. Um, it's yeah, we just, it just doesn't, we only do invite now. Yeah. What? So I know we're kind of following a different thread here for a second, but this is so interesting. What was it about, I I assume you were getting hundreds of submissions and, and in all those years you're taking one or two, why, why were they just all, you couldn't find a single diamond in the rough (laughs) what was happening? No. And that, again, that's part of the inspiration for the, for the book and the approach was yeah. that, so two, two things would happen either, maybe even three. All right. Number one reason that would somebody would get dismissed out of hand was it was clearly a sales job. Like that, that was just like, it was a thing that they were trying to sell. It was a clearly self-promotional. They were kind of in it for the wrong reasons. And we're like, no, <laughs> that's not what TED's about. Uh, and certainly what not TEDx Cambridge is about. Uh, so anybody who was clearly trying to sell something or sell themselves, self-promotional, no. The second thing I would see happen was that the the differentness of the idea couldn't wasn't coming through. Uh, and mm. so when you're looking at that many things, you're like, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it, seen it. And I think sometimes that's because legitimately it wasn't actually a new idea. It always astounds me when someone submits a new idea and I'm like, there's, there's a 
TED talk on this. Like, how do you, how do you mm. not know that? I'm like, research people, like take your topic, research it. Um, I just remember somebody submitting an idea as if it were like the newest thing. And I'm like, there is a best-selling New York Times book on this. Like, how do you miss that? To that third... point, though, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but, the, but to that oh, point, ahead. there's what, uh, between TEDx and TED, 100,000 talks on YouTube now. Are there are there yeah. any new ideas? I mean, where are all these where are all these talks coming from? If if great point, uh, and this is part of why I think there's a you know huge difference in quality in TEDx events, which you know from working with so many people, putting putting them you know, and getting them there. Um, but it's also part of the reason why we at TEDx Cambridge started to go to invite only because essentially the people that we're inviting are academics, and we're, right. we're they're all the primary researchers. So yeah. they that's kind of like the last. Yeah, new source, right? Unless you're, um, so either academics or engineers. I mean, that's that's kind of mm. those are the folks that are still coming up with actually new stuff. Um, but I still think that there's new takes on things. It's just okay. getting harder and harder. I think to have a distinctively new take on on an idea. Yeah, and so that's I think that's hard. Uh, and I think that that makes the work of any of us who do the work of helping people come up with their TEDx idea. Um, that much harder too, because I still hold myself to the standard, even though we do invite only like it, you know, if someone's going to work with me on a TEDx idea, then for me that, that, then it has to, it has to clear a bar where we would have it at TEDx Cambridge. And so sometimes that means that people just aren't ready because that means they need to do a lot more, as I like to call it, they need to have burden of proof that they just don't have, like they may have an idea, but they haven't put it out there or, um, to quote the, the, organizer of TEDx Wilmington, Delaware, uh, Ajit George, he, and I still, I love this line. He said, an interesting story does not equal an interesting idea. Mm. And I think mm. that's really powerful because I see that happen a lot where people are like, well, everybody tells me I should do a TEDx talk. And I'm like, are these people involved in TEDx in any way? Um, <laughs> that's that's like when no. someone's funny in social situations, you should be a stand-up, com stand -up comedian. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's not the same thing. No. <laughs> not the same thing. Not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's very much the case with TEDx. Um, and so that would be some of the reasons why we'd see where someone's like, I've been through this awful thing, or I did this wonderful thing and be like, that's great. But what's the big idea that somebody else who hasn't been through that thing can also take away right. from, from it, not denying that you have a great story or right. whatever. And so typically if I'm talking to people and they do have that, I'm like, listen, it may be, a, it, this could no doubt be a very successful paid keynote, but it's not going to cut it. As a TEDx talk, that I I'm so many things you're saying right now. I see that I'm seeing that more and more. One, as somebody who helps people on this stuff, and you know, as part of my living and proprietary my family yeah. helping these people, I'm more and more getting into these discovery calls where I'm going. I I, I want to work and put food on the table, but I also don't think you have an idea here, you know, or something, or or, or I'll say to somebody, you know, uh, this I, I met someone literally just a few hours ago and amazing person been through incredible stuff story is unbelievable and i said i've seen that tedx talk 400 times i said yeah. your story while meaningful to you is not that interesting i've seen it a million times uh we need yeah. something more than that here yeah because anyone who does the kind of work that we do i mean we see a lot of ideas and organizers see a huge number of ideas so yeah. We have a perspective on what's out there that I think a lot of people don't get a sense of. You know, yeah. They're like, here's this new idea. And I'm like, seeing it. Yeah. Um, 
So I think that that all kind of leads to the last big thing that I would see with folks. And that is that they just, and it's, it's the written equivalent of you ask people what the big idea is and, you know, 20 minutes later, you're still not sure because a lot of times people would give us a title and a title is not an idea. Um, They would, or they would just kind of like say something and I'm like, I don't understand what that is. Like they're using proprietary language or whatever. And it's like, Mm. I'm sure that is extremely, extremely powerful string of words to you. This means nothing to somebody who does not already know what your idea is. And it really was a lot of that altogether where I was like, I, I want to help solve this problem because it shows up everywhere. It shows up when you're trying to explain to someone what your business is and you need to get it, you get, need to get investment. It shows up when people pitch kind of anything like to, you know, I have a friend who hosts a podcast and he's like, well, I'm making people tell me why they should be on my podcast in a sentence. And I'm like, good luck, buddy. Um, like that's the whole reason why I wrote a book. <laughs> because most people can't answer that question in a sentence. Um, or not even and, sure why they yeah. would, would have never even occurred to them to try. Yeah. I mean, but it's like, but, but, but when you're on the receiving end of it, you're like, could you please get to the point? I mean, I think anytime that you're, you know, you, you are on the receiving end of having asked someone like, Hey, what do you do? And then they just start and you're like, oh, so is it, what, what yeah. do you do? Or, you know, I know I've been on the receiving ends of, I think as most of us have of essentially a cold sales call and they're like going on and on and at the end of them, I'm like, yeah, but what does it do? I, <laughs> like, I get, I, I hear you, but what does it do? First of all, I, because I run a podcast, which is a dangerous thing to, to have in your LinkedIn profile, uh, I get so many cold pitches to be on my podcast. First of all, most of them are five paragraphs with a bunch of links. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I've never heard of you. I'm not, you know how big my inbox is? I'm not reading five paragraphs. And second of all, second of all, you clearly haven't listened to my show because my show is about human connection. And I invite people on that I have a connection with and want to hear their human connection story. And people send proposals to me to be on the show and they don't even use the title of the show or my name in their pitch. And I'm like, the show is about human connection. You do you do you want even a chance at me reading this? You know, but no, they're just sending it to a billion people hoping someone and will I say do yes. I love the people. Like I understand why people do it, but then I just I don't understand why they they are then also simultaneously surprised when it doesn't work. Right. So because right. I mean it's a thing that I I have named for myself. Uh, I call it the persuader's paradox, right? Which is that we will do to other people in the name of persuasion things that we simply wouldn't tolerate when they're done to us. And it's like we forget like that other the other people are human. It's like, well, if you don't want it done to you, like why would you why would you do it to somebody else? Like you don't like to receive a form letter. You don't like to have to wade through five paragraphs in the email to figure out the point. Like, why would you do that to someone else? So it's yeah, like when you see when you see a, a lot of uh, rage, Brian, I have yeah, a lot of rage. I, I could feel it. But but rage <laughs> and passion are are really a fine line. Right. I mean, <laughs> just slip on one side or the other any day. But the uh, it's like when you see a CEO or, or somebody give a, a, a present, uh, give a presentation and use 400 slides with a billion words on each slide. And then you go, do you enjoy PowerPoints? Oh, no, I hate PowerPoint presentations. And you go, God, did you hear what you just said? Did you just did it. But it's, but it's just what they, it's what I think I'm supposed to do, or it's just easy to do a PowerPoint presentation. So I did, right? So, all right. So, so we've got these, all these different reasons that people who are applying to, and TEDx is a very specific thing. It's a big dream for a lot of people, which is part of the problem because it's their dream to be 
on a 10x stage. It's part of the problem yeah. um, as opposed to sharing the idea itself. Um, but okay, we've done all the rage, but what do you, what do you love most? <laughs> what do you love most about working with people on their ideas? You are going to work with somebody, you say yes, they, what do you love about it? Uh, I think my favorite thing is when they realize that their idea is even bigger than they realized. And that's the cool thing. I mean, I, I think I mentioned it earlier. I, I enter any engagement with the belief that there is a big idea there. And I, and I believe that even for someone who, you know, and I don't choose to work with, um, you know, the reason I, I'll say no is just because the timeline isn't going to work, right? Like that, that there's an imbalance between the amount of work that we would need to do and let's say money available or time available. Sure. Um, but I, I, so that's the, so that's my favorite, favorite thing is when they're like, oh, oh, I, oh, I could do all of this with that. Or, mm. oh, it's, you know, it's so much bigger. Uh, that's awesome for me because when someone can start to see how an idea starts to unroll itself across like what you could build from it or that, I mean, that's one of the main reasons I'd say. The second thing is when someone starts to see how it all ties together. And so it's one of the places where Red Thread really fortuitously ended up being a great analogy for this because a lot of times, you know, some of the people that I work with more, most often are the folks that are trying to make sense of what otherwise to them feels like kind of a grab bag of things. So, mm -hmm. so this is typically if I'm working with a speaker or something else and they're like, well, I talk about X and Q and Sherpas. And you're like, and they're like, I don't understand. I can't make this make sense. And I'm like, well, it all it must make sense because you did it all. So like mm -hmm. really trying to figure out how to make the internal logic explicit externally like that's super fun because all of a sudden people don't feel like that they you know, they're living on the island of misfit toys anymore. Like that's that can sometimes happen when all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, I've been doing the same thing. It just looks really different in these different areas." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's like, and it's <laughs> super. Like that's such a great moment for people when they can see that." Yeah. So I think those are two of the big, the biggest reasons and the things that I that I love. Um, selfishly. Uh, I'm a huge fan of puzzles, so I love puzzles. Mm. I do you know, like the New York Times crossover puzzle every day. <laughs> and um, for me, working on an idea is also like a puzzle uh, because doing the work that you and I do, uh, particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm and this I'm not, you know, when I work with someone like Caleb Sharf on the existence of the data ohm and how we're not entirely human, we're also part like information machine. Um, like that's an idea that I'm not going to run into again. Right. But if I'm working <laughs> with somebody who's like a leadership speaker, I'm like, oh, okay, this is, it's another leadership talk. Right. And so for me, it becomes a puzzle for how am I going to make, how are we going to find what is different about this one? Like, what is that for me is really, that's really fun work um, because I am really persistent about that with folks because I don't want any idea that I've touched to, to leave me. I mean, they can do whatever they're going to do to it from there, but I don't want yeah. it to leave me uh, feeling like, it could have been anybody's idea. Right. Like I want it to, I want it to leave me feeling like that's the first time it's been expressed that way. And that that new different way of expression is completely in alignment with the person that it's from. And to me, that's the, that's the, that's the personal pleasure that I get yeah. from, from the work is that's how it, part of the reason I remain so engaged in it is because 
every new idea and every finding the red thread of any new idea is like solving a puzzle for me. Yeah. And I love puzzles. Yeah. The differentiating factor is really interesting when you said like, oh, another leadership speaker. It's like when I'm working with uh, mentoring young magicians. Oh, you're you're a magician. That seems really interesting to you. But it, there's the internet that exists and you're Prospect, <laughs> yeah. your prospect yeah. already looked up twelve other magicians in a twenty-mile radius of where you live. So why? So the question I feel like is is always so important is, yeah, you're a magician, but but why you? So so where yeah. where when you're working with somebody who's like another leadership speaker or another time management expert or something like that, how how do you find the new idea? Is it their personal story? Because we already talked about a story is not an idea. There's so many different places. So there really are so many different places. And by the way, just just a and so my husband is an amateur magician. So I and I have this like strange subset of like a lot of my clients actually either are magicians, have been magicians, or are magicians. We're everywhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. uh, but just I want to say like a hat tip, like you know the best example of a differentiating music- magician that I've seen lately is Lucy Darling. Oh. She is amazing. And yes. that actually feeds into the question that you're asking me because there's no way that Lucy, like that's her, that's her, that's her stage name, Lucy sure. Darling. Um, there's no way that that she could have come up with that persona of herself as a as a magician without deeply loving screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s. Like there's no way that she could have come up with that without having a deep, deep passion for that because it's completely that. Like she speaks in that kind of mid-Atlantic, transatlantic accent. She's like, it's all about cocktails. She's she's got this like total vintage vibe. And she's like racy, like like (laughs) screwball comedies are. And she's fantastic. And to me, like that's part of where the differentiation comes from. And because if you look at when when you think about it, you know, so you know, a, a, a pretty basic question that I get a lot of times is like, what is a red thread? And and mm-hmm. to me, a red thread is the story you tell yourself about something to make it make sense. And so, because we do this all the time, consciously, unconsciously, uh, you know, it it is it is the brain, the story our brain builds to explain why this answer belongs with this question or why we choose to do something the way that we do, and. So that's one way to think about it. But the other way to think about it is it is an it's an explicit articulation of your point of view of how you have how you see the world. Yeah. And so when it comes to differentiation, there is, you know, there's kind of two things. It's almost like, you know, with a with a fable, for instance, there's the story and then there's the the moral of the story. And to me, there's the life that you've lived, and then there's the red thread of the life that you've lived. So you can have this story from which there can be remarkably differentiating things. And then there's like the moral of that story in the form of your red thread that can also be differentiating because of what all of that boils down to. But there there are so many sources of differentiation, and it doesn't come down to like, I always wear aqua. I mean, that that kind of differentiation just drives me nuts. Uh, because it's not, it's not right. sticky. It's not long-term. It's, it doesn't have, it, it's not, you know, to use, I forget who's, is it Warren Buffett's for, uh, analogy? There's no moat around it, right? Like mm. there's no, like anybody else can also then start wearing aqua. And right. then like you have no protection on that. But your your unique point of view on the world is inviolable. Like nobody else can have that. Mm. 
But what that translates to is so many different things. You can differentiate on whom you serve, right? So let's talk about that leadership speaker. Is that leadership speaker talking to current leaders, future leaders? Is it talking to managers of leaders? Is it talking to the teams of the leaders? Like you can, you could just go right there. Like, who are you serving? Right. So again, another magician example, like I, I forget his name, but the millionaire's magician, like he's, Steve Cohen. he's differentiating. Yeah. He's differentiating based on his audience, right. Or oh, yeah. his aspirational audience. <laughs> Cause yeah, they're like, I want to be, a, I want to be. Yes. Um, yes. So very clever. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. you can differentiate based on the audience. You can differentiate based on, you know, the way that I think about it is all things through the lens of the red thread. Like what questions do you answer for people? Mm-hmm. You know, for instance, all of my work is about closing the gap between pot- potential and reality. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you see some, you know, like you, you know where you are, you know where you want to be. And for whatever reason, you cannot figure out how to get from A to B or from Y to Z like I'm your girl. Like that's, I love that. Like that's, you know, again, it's a puzzle to solve. It's a, it's a, it's a blank crossword. Let me fill it in. We're going to figure this out. Um, but you can differentiate on kind of the frames on the perspective that you take. Okay. Well, say, let's say more than one person answers the question, how can we make our company or our employees more engaged? Well, some people are going to look at that as a process problem, and some people are going to look at that as a management problem, and some people are going to look at that as a time problem. Some people are going to look at that as a sleep problem, as one of my uh, as one of my clients do, does. So the perspective that you take it on that, on on where the where to look for the answer, is differentiating. Why you think that perspective is so important is differentiating. Yeah. How you put that into place is differentiating. And even if somehow, though it's near statistically impossible with that many variables in place, someone else has gotten exactly the same kind of, you know, goal problem, truth change act as I talk about in the in the red thread, then there's the style of it that you do differently, right? Like so. I can Just I I can give you a so many ways perfect example of this, which is our our mutual. We have a lot of mutual friends. It's amazing. It took us all these years to to connect uh, personally. But uh, Tim David, who was a mentor of mine, he helped mentor me in from magic into speaking. So the insane thing is, what are the odds that within a couple of hours driving distance, there are two former magicians who now specialize in speaking on human connection? in the world, right? right? The uh, And I had never heard of him before I made that leap. I made that leap and then discovered him and went, oh my, I'd already given the TEDx on, you know, how to magically connect with yeah, everyone, yeah. Uh, with anyone. Like, oh, hey, and I was like, oh my God, there's, there's another, David out there. what are the odds? But even within that, you would never be debating between me and him for the same conference because in spite of all that aesthetics that he and I seem to have in common, he approaches it from the persuasion, influence, language, body language angle. And I approach it from the perspective taking tactical empathy angle. We have two completely different approaches, both former magicians right. talking on human connection. It's it's wild. That's right. And it's and it's and it's no doubt because and even why you all why you each got into magic and even like what the aspects of that about magic were interesting to you are that feeds into it to me, to me too. Like, you know, you, you probably, I would, I would bet a lot that you all were wildly different magicians too. I would and it's think one so. of the things that I like the one I, so, so to me, and this is where my husband has been really helpful and just deepening my appreciation for magic because 
fundamentally the mechanics of a of a of an effect i mean are the same right like you know and it's not hard you can like you know they there's videos on it and there's books and there's like oh whatever and like and so as soon as you've mastered the mechanics of a particular effect okay but <laughs> yeah. it's I, what i find endlessly fascinating because now i've seen a lot of magic um i can as somebody who doesn't know how to do the effects and i choose not to by and large i've now got to a point where i'm like oh but that's this one like i can see it and i can see how different yeah. people do the same effect but from a completely different way right and we and we've all you know those of us who are like lay magician like we're not we don't actually, actually say muggles, actually but yeah, muggles. <laughs> <laughs> but those of us who don't do it, but like are just, you know, kind of deep appreciators of it. Yeah. I mean, we've all seen, you know, we've, there's the, the thing, the prediction in the locked box, right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere like that at the beginning, like there's a thing that's hanging where no, like in plain sight the whole time and nobody could have touched it and whatever. And at the end of it, at the end of the show, usually like, here's this prediction and everybody's like, oh my gosh. And so I can describe that and, and people are like, oh yeah, I've seen it. I can't even tell you how many different variations on that I've seen. Yeah. And it's always fascinating to me to see like, well, how, how do they make this one theirs? Like what's their take on it? And to me, that is immediately transferable to this idea of ideas because you don't have to, like the mechanic doesn't have to be much different. I mean, yeah, of course you can differentiate on the mechanic. Um, you know, and you can come up with new ways to do things. It's one of the reasons why I think female magicians are so interesting because so much of magic was built around men's clothing and how yeah, men's pockets. clothing is structured. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pockets. Yeah. Um, and so to see, um, oh, I forget her name and it makes me sad. Um, but we saw a great uh, magician in Las Vegas and she, just to see what she did, like, uh, without, Kayla, you probably saw Kayla Drescher. She was at the S. No, she was at the what is it? The Wingate. The, I don't know, but now I'm gonna have to. I'm it's gonna have the to look. Former up. Beverly Hilton. I'm uh, not the Beverly Hilton. For, former Las Vegas Hilton. Anyway, my husband's gonna be like, "Oh my gosh, can't you?" I think her name was Jen something. <laughs> oh, Jen Kramer. Um, again, yes, Jen Kramer. That's Small exactly world. who it was. Um, <laughs> she gave a TEDx well, talk <laughs> when she was still a student <laughs> at Yale. That's right, and she did the kind of tangrams, and she was doing that. She mm -hmm. used that that puzzle that were yeah, the visual puzzle. Yeah. Um, see, I'm not lying when I say <laughs> <laughs> um, I did and, not expect yeah, us to was, talk so much about magic. For the record, this is fantastic. Like I said, it just it ends up coming up, and if I'm talking with a magician, I'm like, oh yeah, I I can use these, you know, I can use these things, um, just to see what she was able to do without like jackets right and mm -hmm. and do it and yet see some of these same effects that typically are fairly reliant mm -hmm. on you know a, a jacket or a sleeve or whatever and to, for her to be doing it in a strapless or a sleeveless dress you're like okay she had to figure out a fundamentally different way to do it and i remember seeing an interview with penn and teller and you know they talked about when on their show fool us that the female magicians have an have a much better rate of fooling them because they've had to figure out a fundamentally different way to do it. Yeah. And so all of this, I think, is relevant to what we're talking about is that sometimes you know, just out of necessity or out of orneriness, which is kind of, I think where some of my approach comes from, I just, like I was like, I want to figure out a, a, what was that? It's that rage again. 
<laughs> well, I just, so, and I'll get back to this, but the, you know, so I'm sure that it could be very easy to dismiss my stuff as like, oh, it's another take on storytelling. Um, and I really wanted to come up with a different, different angles again on, on story, but it came from a deep dissatisfaction of all the other stuff out there that I found on story, which is everybody would tell you what a story is, but they really wouldn't tell you how to construct one. And the best information I could see on how to actually construct one, like how do you put the pieces together? People would talk about setup, conflict, resolution. Oh, well, great. But how do you create, like what needs to go into the setup? How do you create that conflict? What, what starts the resolution? How does, what has to be there? the only stuff that I saw that was regularly useful on all of that was, was stuff that was written for uh, screenwriters, playwrights, TV writers, yeah. um, those kinds of things, which fun fact, my sister is a screenwriter. Um, yeah. And so she was helpful because she was like, oh, you should read this. Um, yeah. But I was like, well, this doesn't exist for like day-to-day conversations. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the thing that I kept seeing was just that you know, a lot of the stuff that focused on certain aspects aspects of story form were incomplete or not applicable across. Meaning, you know, if it's focused, for instance, on the hero's journey, well, that's great, except not every story is a quest and that mm-hmm. there's some there's dangers built in. Like if you frame your message as a hero's journey where you frame yourself as the mentor, very unintentionally, sometimes you can come across as pretty condescending and not giving your audience credit for doing the work and, you know, all of that. So when it comes to these ideas, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes it you are able to come up with a fundamentally different way to do the thing, right? Fundamentally different way to, to create the same effect. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, you know, you can you come up with a new mechanic, right, for mm-hmm. a different different effect, and then sometimes it's the same mechanic, but it's a complete like you've just figured out a different way to present it and to, yeah. um, you know, p- put it out there. I mean, it's just it's fascinating to me. I mean, because you, you can look at somebody like Darren Brown, who quote unquote mentalist, but again, the the whole perception that and the whole way that he's putting out there is that he's putting it out there as. I am telling you what I am doing yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Um, and I'm going to see like, and you're going to see that this, that this is just psychology when it comes down to it. And I've been thinking about Darren so much as you've been talking, because uh, he is one of the best examples of a modern magician who actually does magic. His show has an idea worth spreading. Like every oh, show he yeah. does is clearly designed to be a story, a narrative, to leave the audience, to take them on a journey with a specific, not just, hey, we're going to have some fun tonight. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I can also get that from watching cat videos on YouTube, right? <laughs> like That's kind of the problem. Right. And it, yeah. yeah. And it's really interesting just to see that evolution. So um, again, I'm going to forget the name of the magician's name, but Tom and I were lucky enough to see well, not only did we see Darren Brown when he did a show on Broadway, but um, we also saw um, In and of Itself when it was. Yes, yes, magnificent. So, uh, yeah, and and again, it was just a fascinating, um, fascinating frame on on things, and so it, it just gets. Yeah, Derek I, Delgadio. Yeah. Don't thank you. <laughs> It took it took me a second too. I wanted to make sure we we uh, we said it if I could remember it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a good exercise and recall. <laughs> um, 
So, so again, this is the funny thing about me. I can remember an idea forever. <laughs> like, so who, like, and I can be like, it's the thing where the, but, and the person I, I have much harder time, but this is why I never get tired of this work because there is always something, right? There's yeah. always something. And, and it's either inherent in the red thread of somebody themselves. It's inherent in their worldview or it is, it can come from something that they're deeply passionate about. You know, I, I get a lot of people who come comment on the strength of my visual branding, right? That's a thing that I hear about a lot. Like you see something so of mine, like it's, it's, it's clear that it's mine. And, pro, you know, and the thing is like, I haven't switched off of it for 10 years, not because like some marketing book told me not to, I, I like things that look like that. Like that's, that's what it comes down to. Like I, I love like the combination of like old and new stuff and, yeah. and just always like I could turn the, the, like the camera around in my office and you would see it's like, it's, it is, it's a, it's a, it's kooky in here. Um, but like it comes from what I love. Like, and so I think that that's part of what people are afraid of. They're so fixated on, will it sell that they, you know, or will it get accepted if we're talking about TEDx that, that you end up, you, you end up spending all your time away from what's strong, mm -hmm. but you've already built up an extraordinary strength of view of point of view mm. um you already have things that you you actually like um if you just sometimes let yourself show that and you let yourself do that i mean i know that for years and years and years people would be, <laughs> had this really interesting conversation the other day randomly somebody you know in the in a and the National Speakers Association was uh, on their their Facebook group. I am a, I'm a proud member. Um, and he just was randomly for some reason. He's like, I I need to talk with people who skipped a grade. And I was like, oh, I skipped first grade, but I can talk to you. <laughs> um, and and in the conversation with him, uh, Gregory Offner Jr. That's who it was. We 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 got to talking about how you know I as as somebody who did skip a grade and as somebody who um, you know, elementary school was in, I hate the gifted and talented and whatever, um, is that I have been told more than once. And this has, I think some gendering things too, because I've talked to my husband also very smart, who's, this has never been said to, but I've been said, you know, I, I heard many times actually that I was too smart. And so for a long time, I pulled back on kind of what I would show or what I would talk about or how I would talk about stuff. And, you know, and, and then I, and I simultaneously, I was like, why aren't I getting traction? Like as a speaker or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered that I had a really good proof that a, that wasn't true. And that B, that I could still be successful with that. And that was the 13 years that I, that I moonlighted as a Weight Watchers leader because mm -hmm. like these were, these were not academics sitting in that room and 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 yet some of these concepts of change and motivation and um persuasion and influence and and health and metabolism and all of that are pretty sophisticated concepts and i was able to find a way with that group to be able to talk about these very sophisticated things in a way that worked and made them feel smarter about all of this stuff mm -hmm. so i made a conscious decision a few years ago to say well 
if like there's no such thing as too smart, like full stop. Um, but that doesn't mean that I could find ways to make my stuff more understandable to other people. But it's part of the reason why I do like I've got completely random stories that I, I mean, they're not random. They're very intentionally put in there, but it's like, you know, the big keynote that I developed a couple of years ago opens with the story of Ignaz Semmelweis, who was a Viennese doctor in like 1847. Mm -hmm. Um, and I contrast that with Florence Nightingale, um, and contrast the two stories of both people wanting people to wash their hands. This was pre pandemic, Mm -hmm. by the way. So yeah, well, um, (laughs) And I was just like, you know what? And I just leaned into it because I was like, you know what? This is interesting. It's interesting to me. I cannot be the only person this is interesting about. And now people are like, oh, well, that's now it's like this distinctive thing about what I do is that I find these like completely unusual stories and bring them in. And it's like it that I just like that stuff. So I put that in. I, I, and I, I got to say what I love about that is so many of the people we were, you were talking about a little, well, a little while ago about how you need to differentiate yourself from just, just another storytelling coach or another storytelling consultant. And so many of the storytelling people um, are so focused on the personal story, the personal, you got to tell personal stories and authentic and vulnerable. It's like, yes, but there's been this, this, I, I don't know this, just going around, I feel like over the last few years that you have to tell these deeply emotional, moving, gripping, personal stories. And what you just said, and what's so funny is that I open uh, my workshops with a story that has nothing to do with me. You just said you open your keynotes with a story that's got nothing to do with you, that you can tell other people's stories, historical events, things that people forgot about history or have never heard before. You can tell parables or myths. You can tell all kinds of stories because, as you say in the book, the story is not the idea, right? The story serves the idea. And I right. love that. And that was part of the, yeah. And that, that was, <laughs> was actually part, again, part of the inspiration for the red thread was that, uh, a lot of the folks that I was working with as speakers, these were not that they weren't good storytellers or great presenters. I mean, these were academics, they taught, they, they present on their work all the time. It's just, they were actually deeply comfortable with the idea of telling a story. And so I was like, okay, but all the research shows that stories, how we make sense of information and all of that. And so I was like, so there's gotta be, there's gotta be something that, that, that we're missing with this. And it really came from this understanding that there's that story, like the details of a story sits upon a structure that's universal. And it's the structure that the, our brains recognize, not the story itself. The story is just the, the, the kind of ornaments on the tree um, but it's the, it's the structure of a story that our brain is looking for, that our brain is trying to fill in and that our brain uses to make sense of other information. So the whole idea was, and really the, the hypothesis I went into creating the red thread from was how can I make a talk in this case, you know, TEDx talks, how can I make them feel like a story, even if they aren't one, how can mm. they have the na- narrative arc and the drive and the transformation of a story without being a story. And it all comes down to, well, you just put in, you put them into story structure and you can do that with any length content and our brains will recognize it. It will have, it'll have like this, even if it's short, it's going to have this like little baby narrative arc. It's going to have this little baby 
um, you know, emotional up and down that happens as a result. And you're going to get that power from that presentation that you wouldn't have with the, and this is a little, another source of rage with the open three point close format <laughs> that a lot of people espouse. Yeah. And I do not. Yeah. So what I wanted, I, I really, speaking of stories, we, we, we've talked a lot about story. We've talked all around story today. I, I want to get your story of, of a chance encounter with lasting impact, something every guest on this show does. But if you've got a couple minutes, cause we're bumping, we're, we're, we're coming soon, oh, bumping sure. up on our time. There's, we're on such a good thread about the red thread. Um, and, and really I'll have said this in the intro that I haven't recorded yet cause the future's in the past, but I, um, I love, uh, time travels weird. I love, I mean, I love this book, which, you know, cause I've told you personally a handful of times. And what was so amazing for me about this is as someone who won keynotes and who gets great reviews, who gets standing ovations, who teaches people how to do this, I've always struggled to with some kinds of people and some types of messages, find a way to tell them in a compelling story way, very similar to what you were just saying, which is there's not an obvious story to be told, but the, but the, the message and the idea and the takeaways are there. And what your book did, and I read it on literally like two flights back to back on one day, like with a layover going and, and was implementing it that night. This nice. book is so well-written. It's so easy to implement because there are magnificent books on um, presentations and speech writing that are not easy to implement. They are textbooks, they're resources. There's one aspect of your five-step kind of structure that was the most interesting to me. And and I'd be interested to know if oh, you can get, I'd be interested if you can guess which, which is, which for someone like me would have been the most interesting. I'm curious if you can guess. I'm going to suggest it's the moment of truth, but it I, is the I, truth. I, yes. Yes. Mind reading. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So this, this was really I was the like, key. Most people say the duck bunny, but I'm like, I think Brian Miller, that you understood how significant the truth part is. Yeah, like, the, that's, that's the hidden, that's the hidden power of this whole thing. Yeah. The, the duck bunny was great. You know, um, um, uh, phrasing, you know, framing a problem like that is, is great, but and no one who's listening to this who hasn't read this knows what we're talking about yet, but that's good. You should go read it. Uh, so the truth, though, this chapter on the truth and the truth statement is really the key to the entire process for me. And it unlocked so many of the most difficult puzzles that I was trying to solve for people is going, that's what was missing. Can you very briefly explain for us what the truth statement is and what it does when you're tell when you're when you're sure. trying to make your idea irresistible? So I, so the truth statement, let me start from what it does. So it, it, it is, it, it, it creates a moment where somebody has to choose. It creates something where somebody has to wrestle with what they want and what they believe and what they've been doing so far. And I took it from, you know, it's one of those, it is a key, it is the thing that makes a story a story. Uh, like once upon a time story, it is the thing where there's always a moment of truth. No matter what format that story, no matter what structure, quest, rags to riches, there's always a moment of truth because there's always some moment where there is the storytellers and screenwriters and what I call it, the point of no return, right? That there's, there's a moment where there is a choice that dictates everything else. And I was like, well, if I'm trying to get somebody to act on an idea, I need that. So how do we, how do we create that? 
So the truth statement is the piece of information that you deliver about your idea that that forces that conflict into into sharp focus. And so what it is, is something that your audience already believes, right? Or readily would, you know, it's something that exists. uh, It's a belief that exists already in their belief ecosystem out of side the context of what you're talking about. And because it's true, they believe it's true someplace else. When it's brought into the context of your idea, it kind of creates this oh crap moment because if it if if they agree that it's true someplace else and also true here then it should constructed well make what they want you know, put that immediately in jeopardy because based on what they're doing so far so the reason why so the choice that you're forcing there is do you still want this thing that you want right are you still do you still want the answer to this question that my idea serves like you know what it is do you still want to engage your team right do you still want um you know to understand what our future as humans is going to look like are you going to suddenly unbelieve this thing that you agree is true also unlikely or are you going to shift a perspective uh, from how you've been looking at so far to another perspective that again constructed well you already agree is also valid and most people because they want to be perceived as open-minded are very open to shifting their perspective particularly when the the, the you've squeezed it between something that they want and something they believe and so um yeah that moment of truth is massive it is it is the it is the key to everything and it, it, the yeah. the most common thing that I see missing from uh, presentations, ideas, books, marketing mess- messages, sales messages is is, is that we, we they miss an 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 impossible to ignore reason uh, to change your mind. Yeah, it's for 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 me, and and it's so funny because it has so many ties to to magic. Is that magic has this uh, built into it, which is that there's a truth that you know the world only works a certain way. You understand implicitly the physics of how things work. You know that a solid object can't pass through a solid object. You've tried to, you've smacked into a wall before, so you know that that hurts and you can't pass through it. So because it's built into magic implicitly that there is a truth that I don't have to convince you of. And that's the key to the truth statement is that you, you the, I think the mistake uh, that a lot of people would make without even realizing it is trying to make their argument during the truth statement. And it's like, no, 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 the 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 truth statement is something that if I said it to you and you went away and thought about it on your own, you would realize that you would come to that conclusion with or without me. And then you could come back. Right. And 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 that when they when they it's like what they want, like runs face first into the truth statement. And now they've got a now it's a tension. Now it's a point of conflict. That's right. So you're you're. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just talking with someone about this earlier and it was. Um, so this is a product of some of the the thinking I'm doing about new perspectives on mm. on ideas. And, um, you know, I've had a talk in the past that's called What's Missing from Your Message, but that didn't really focus on this. But this is, I think this is where I'm I'm going with this. It's that plus that kind of famous uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that there are no second acts in American lives. And, you know, that, and generally that's taken to, interpreted to mean that, that you know, we in America particularly like to skip from setup to resolution that that we're like here's the problem here's the solution mm. and that we don't you know again from a from a kind of more deep thinking standpoint that second act is really that we don't actually like as a culture 
to question our own beliefs and to do that hard mental work. But this is something I learned as a Weight Watcher leader. You cannot change without actually forcing yourself to put to into a fight two things about you that you believe are true. And, mm-hmm. and one of them, as I say in the book, when two truths fight, only one lives. That is the way to create change in, in yourself or other people is that you basically, you, you put two or in this case, three things up there and say, which one, which one will you not back down on? Which, which yeah. ones can't move for you? Because you will always, you will always choose, right? So, you know, I saw it in, in my life as a Weight Watcher leader where it's like, cause I saw it in my own behavior. Like when it came down to it, when I was struggling with losing weight 22 years ago, it's because in the moment I wanted that thing like I wanted the pint of ice cream more than I wanted something else. And there was no other explanation for it, at least for me. It was mm-hmm. that just when it came down to it, but the way to resolve that for me was to put those things, was to bring it, make it overt, to make it explicit and say, which thing do you actually want more? Like yeah. this thing, right, that's here right in the moment or this? Are you the kind of person, Tamsin, who will do this or this? And when you when you force yourself to do that, when you force yourself through the second act to that moment of truth, you cannot emerge from it unchanged uh, in some way because something will change. You either will give up that thing that you want or you will change your perspective or you will shift your belief. And you know, the, the whole idea about the way that the, I've built the red thread and we've shaped it up is that you're building it on with the assumption that two of those things are unlikely to change, right? And that's the that's that want and the belief. But it's so important. I mean, it's you if you're if you're you know if you're talking about speakers, if your intent is to actually change people. So you know, I I had it's a line that's on my website, but it's a thing I said long before that. If you're if your goal is not just to wow the crowd but to change them, then I don't understand how you can be committed to doing anything but creating a permanent shift in thinking or behavior. And the only way to do that is to work with how people's brains are going to work, which is people will resolve uh, uh, that what's known as cognitive dissonance. When if you bring two things that they believe together and they're in conflict with each other, they will resolve it in a certain way. And what you're doing is just getting is, 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 is setting the probability that they're going to resolve it in the direction of your idea. Right. Yeah, it's 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 amazing and uh I it's it's been so useful. It's just like the articulation of it. it's one of those things that I just I feel like I did it intuitively in my own work coming out of magic it made sense, but then when I was trying to do it for somebody else's work it was just that was the thing where once I had a way to describe to them what I was trying to do with them um, it just instantly changed some of the hardest cases, um, uh, some Yay. of the puzzles. So yeah, fantastic. Um, so we're we're yeah, I mean we're we're literally over over the the time that we allotted. I have a few more. Do you have a few more? I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. I, yes. Okay. Because at least quickly, I want to get. We talked about story for an hour, but you haven't told me one of like the story that most people are here to tell. Your chance encounter. Do you do you have a chance encounter in your life? or career uh, of, of great significance that had lasting impact? Oh my gosh. I mean, it, there's so, I mean, I was thinking about this and it's uh, it, my first reaction, of course, which I'm sure is most people's reaction was like, oh my gosh, no, <laughs> I 
I don't know. I, I, maybe that isn't most people's reactions, but it is mine where I'm like, wait, uh, do I? Um, but then the more I thought about it, I'm like, oh, but there's so many. Like, yeah. just if you really start to think about, um, you know, a thing that just had in a way that you couldn't imagine, like uh, an unfolding of of effects and um, impact over time, right? Like, I, I, it's it, it actually became hard to choose for that reason. Mm. Um, but I think, in a way, I think the one that would make the most sense, because mostly because I want to honor this person and 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 the role that eventually I think this chance encounter had. Um, uh, was this one. And this was well, probably about 10 years ago now. Um, and I was attending, uh, and let's see, a little, just a little bit of context. So I was working at, in an agency. So it was a brand strategy agency. And it was really the beginning of social. And part of my job was business development in addition to being a, a brand strategy consultant. And I was the one that seemed to have the most kind of already knowledge of social and stuff. And so I went to this event here in Boston uh, named that was called PodCamp Boston. And so originally it was for podcasters, like way back when, the OGs. Uh, but given the rise of social, it was as much about kind of social stuff. But again, early, early, early. Um, and these early PodCamps were, and I, I miss them still, um, mm. were a form of conference that doesn't seem to exist much anymore, but they were, they were called unconferences. And the idea was that, yes, there was some established, like, you know, uh, not curricula, but but sessions and things like that. But it was also an opportunity for people just to on the spot create new ones, right? Mm. And and do that. And I ended up having lunch with a group of people that were really interesting. A guy named Jeff Cutler and a guy named Mike Langford, and we we struck up this conversation about kind of the nature and the future of work. And we decided to have this. Um, like this spontaneous session on it. And, uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was fascinating. Um, but sitting as part of that group was, you know, who at the you know, person who at the time was like a massive name and still is. And that was Chris Brogan mm. and Chris Brogan. Um, so he, along with Julian Smith wrote the New York times bestselling book, trust agents. And he was really at the kind of very much the face of social, um, at that time. And it was the kind of the sweetest thing, which is con completely consistent with Chris. But, you know, we were, you know, after we, we, we got into a really interesting conversation. And then after that session, he tweeted, you should really follow Tamadir. She's very engaging. And this, like at the time for Chris Brogan was just like, like to do that was like, like a massive hit, like in a good way to um, kind of attention and all of that. But that wasn't even really it, because for me, the reason why it ended up being so significant was not only did it be start at the beginning of a, of a, a really lovely friendship and professional relationship um, that continues, um, but it was a it was a kind of mark of validation of oh hey I've got something of value to say here and that that there's a there's a nature of how I do it that can serve me well and trying to get all of this across. So it really was very much a, a, a vote of confidence, not that I necessarily needed it, but it certainly sped things up in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise um, gotten to. I mean, I think it would have just taken me a little bit while longer, but it also made me say to myself, okay, 
all right, if that person who's you know, titularly the head of all of this is like, oh, she's she's interesting. Let's pay attention to her. Um, that'll that put me in a situation of saying, okay, well now I I want to fulfill that remember gap between potential and reality. Yeah. Like, oh, well, there's a thing. Now let me figure out how I can I I I want to be that. I want to be yeah. somebody who is of use to other people um, in some way. I. I, what I really love is that I'm not even sure if you intended as you started that story, but it kind of happened naturally as as you went into it. You really brought us back to the very beginning of this almost an hour ago, this full circle moment where where it was actually not even apart from being having a, a new friend and a new professional acquaintance and all this stuff and getting some new followers on social. It was that that person, somebody that you looked up to or had esteem for, respect for. Um, saying that you're somebody who's worth following made you tell a new story about yourself. It gave you a new way to tell yeah. a story about yourself, which is what this has all been about since since the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, so that yeah. that's wonderful. So thanks, Chris Brogan. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, before I let you go, where should people find you? Where do you want them to connect with you on on the interwebs. Oh, I, I am I am literally the only Tamsin Webster in the universe, at least the only <laughs> one that Google lets me know. Uh, so uh, anything that you can find online yeah. for me, but all things Tamsin are at TamsinWebster.com. And uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. all there. TamsinWebster.com. And uh, of course, link to your book, Find Your Red Thread, uh, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible will be in the show notes and uh, and everywhere else. And really, Anybody listening to this, no matter what you do, uh, this is, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're 24 and you're coming out of your master's and you're looking to get your first job, or if you're 35 and switching careers, if you're self-employed, if you're employed, there's a speaker or not, because we've talked a lot about speakers and stage performers, but there's so many different places yeah, um, to, absolutely. to, to use this. It's really exceptional. That's my, and that was really my goal. Like it. Uh, I, I, I joke, but it's, it's serious that I overthink. So you don't have to, uh, <laughs> I promise to my clients. Um, but I, my hope is really that it helps shorten the learning curve for people. I mean, it's, it's, it's a book that I wish I had when I was in my early twenties and, uh, you know, as I was pivoting careers in my mid thirties and, um, because I think that if I could have told the story of, what I did and where I was going and how I got there with more clarity earlier, I, yeah. I it would have given me, I think, even a stronger footing to to say this is what I'm here to do, and uh, it all makes sense looking back. But and I I can explain it all now. But um, being able to have that, you know, I hope being giving people that framework for thinking through their own ideas and even their own lives, just to get a better sense of what is that truly unique worldview that they have, um, that that unique worldview can't help but give rise to unique and different ideas. It's fantastic. Tamsin, thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, this, this afternoon. This is amazing. My pleasure. Thanks so much. 